This is Purple Elephant, where I bring the proverbial elephant to the table in order to deconstruct ableism, prejudice and misconceptions. On today's episode, we have David Williamson. He is a National Diversity Award and Pride of Britain Award nominee because, ladies and gentlemen, he pushed himself in a wheelchair for 30 marathons over 30 consecutive days. Yeah, he is mad. So we're going to listen to that episode and to be fair, we get into so many topics, it ends up essentially becoming, I would say, a therapy session for me. So I hope you enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. I think humour is a way to create an identity as well. So like I say, you can be that funny disabled person, but you can overuse it as well. It's, it's, it's one of those strange things where you have to find the balance. Mm. and having no legs balances and particularly my torso. Welcome to Purple Elephant, David, and thank you so much for being on the show. How are you today? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. I'm very happy that the sun's back out again. What about yourself? You enjoying the sunshine? Or are you not a sun uh, man? I am. I've gotten into yoga in a big way recently. So we're lucky enough to have a garden here. So I've been out in the garden doing yoga, which for the neighbours is probably hilarious watching a double amputee fall over, <laughs> every, you know, as they try and do the up dog and everything. But um, yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, I feel like I've stalked you a little bit on the internet and I, <laughs> I know about <laughs> you, but just for those people listening, could you introduce yourself and tell us all about you? Please. Yeah, yeah, of course. My name is Dave Williamson. I'm a double amputee. I had both my legs amputated when I was a few months old. As I was born without, I had an incomplete skeleton, effectively. And I suppose I, oh, I sound like an awful diva. I'm best known for an event last year where I, I pushed 30 wheelchair marathons in 30 consecutive days. That's very impressive. Thank you. As well as, as that, I've done things like Great South Runs. And I, I've played sitting volleyball for, for Portsmouth for kind of 10 years although I'm now very old and retiring and moving into a coaching role so I guess that's it really that's that's uh, that's the show done okay goodbye folks <laughs> <laughs> well you got a great sense of humor and that's exactly what I like so thank you I was absolutely impressed the fact that you did 30 marathons in 30 days and I know you would have had to train for it and I know that you you have stamina and everything like that but just the prospect of just the thought of it exhausts me. So the fact that you did 30 in 30 consecutive days, like how long did that take you to A, prepare and B, why are you so mad? What made you think that you wanted <laughs> yeah. to do this? <laughs> I love that. What's wrong with you? As a prep thing, like so I said, I've done things, for, well, for the last 10 years, really, my main hobby has been fundraising. So I had a, a certain degree of fitness anyway. I did most of my prep on mental kind of, strength really just because I knew that I couldn't kind of just turn up at the start line every morning with just like a oh I'll, I'll get through it kind of attitude I had to get beyond the start line really prepared to go out and smash it every single day so in terms of prep that's that's what I really focused on it was just it was actually really good fun but mainly because I had so much support as well my family and friends are incredible and I think if you've got that support network that's 90% of the battle really. Yeah absolutely I think that's the thing in anything like you have to be a strong human and, and mentally resilient regardless but I feel like 70% of the time is also to do with your cheerleaders like if they weren't there you'd feel like you're just talking to an empty room all the time 
and that can make you well for me personally make you feel a little bit despondent so yeah it's it's really fantastic that you had such amazing support but also that you had the drive to even do it in the first place i agree with that completely there was one day where i didn't have any support there at all and that was the toughest day because you, you t to motivate yourself all the way through and the first 15 marathons i was up in london in crystal palace and just staying in kind of in a hotel room on my own so to go out there with no support and then just go back to a hotel room and sit on my own that was one of the toughest days but it really made me appreciate uh, all the support i was getting even more like i say the first 15 i was doing on running tracks in london so i suppose my greatest asset was that i'm not quite clever enough to get bored of going around in circles for six <laughs> hours so that really helped out <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh some people say real athletes they never listen to music or anything like that how did you keep your focus did you uh, <laughs> as you said being mad enough to keep going around in circles for hours was it yeah how did i mean you... I, I'm, I'm i'm certainly not a real athlete if you look at someone like um the the Tanny Grade Thompsons of this world. I'm not an athlete, and, and I think it proves that because I was listening to music the whole way around. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I found it really motivational. I, I tend to, when I'm doing these things, I listen to kind of quite heavy rock and roll music, really. And that just energizes me for, for whatever reason, I guess just the pace of it. That just really helps. So what I would say is when I do things like the Great South Run, then you shouldn't have headphones on because then the crowds that are there will, will kind of cheer you on. Yeah. So it, it's, it, you know, it's horses for courses, really. It depends absolutely on the context. I did a couple of those kind of fun day marathon, children marathons to raise money for my local hospital. And I can honestly say that the crowd is what made it. And then I'd have friend she was pushing me she was quite sporty so she actually had the stamina so she pushed me for quite a lot of it the last bit at the end and just doing it completely on my own and, and pushing myself was really fantastic because the crowd had gone wild and I'm like I feel like I didn't deserve it because she'd pushed me the whole way around and I just did the last bit yeah I think going back to what you were saying about going to a, like an empty hotel room with no camaraderie at the end yeah, that, that must have been really tough and mentally on you. So, yeah, well done for, for doing that because I think that honestly could have broken a lot of people. Do you know what? I actually put something up on Twitter yesterday when I was about seven, seven marathons in. And to be fair, seven marathons in a row is, is uh, a heck of an achievement. Yes. And at that point, I wasn't thinking about giving up, but I was kind of thinking about thinking about giving up. Right. If you get what I mean. Mm -hmm. And and I got um, a message through, um, I guess, on Facebook or Twitter from someone I didn't know. And, and they had just taken the time to write to me to say that their husband was a double amputee. And what I was doing was just kind of galvanizing them. Wow. So when you receive that kind of feedback, you, you can't give up. You know, you, you kind of I think you have a responsibility at that point. But can I tell you a really quick story about the Great South Run and what you've just said about the crowd cheering you on? Yeah, please. The first time I did the Great South Run, it was around about 2009. And I was just getting back into sport after being out for a long time. And uh, they made me start at the very back of the course so that you get about 25,000 people there. Yeah. And I was the last person to cross the start line. Gosh. And when I got to about halfway, I realised that as I was going past, 
the crowd was shouting my name. They're like, oh, go on, David, go on, David. Wow. And I, I didn't know why. I thought, oh, my God, I'm famous. Like, maybe there's something gone out on TV or, mm. or radio or something. And then I looked down and I realized that on the, the number that they give you to pin to your shirt, they actually put your name there as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought I was suddenly famous, but all these people were doing was just reading. But yeah, You're that, still that was... famous. You've had a crowd of people <laughs> chanting your name. Uh, I don't think many of us can say that. No, but the only reason they were doing it was because it was on my shirt at the time. So okay. it, it takes away from the, the glamour. But that, just laughing at myself, that probably carried me through the next mile of that event. Mm. Brilliant. I think you've got a great sense of humour and I think that probably entwines into not only your personality but your drive. There are a lot of negative people online in general and there are a lot of negative disabled people. And I think what drew me to you is because you're, you're positive, you're a bit sassy, you've got a great sense of humour and, and that comes through. And I feel like for me personally, those are the people I, I, I truly connect with. I adore when people can find the funny side, I guess, of their, I would say disability, but like anyone can have anything in life. And if you can find the funny side of it, I'm, I'm automatically drawn to them. So do you find that you are drawn to people who also share like a great sense of humour, maybe in and out of the disability community? I think it, it very much depends on how you're kind of brought up. As we've mentioned before, the support network around you. I've always felt like a bit of a mongrel in the disability world. And what I mean by that is I went to a mainstream able-bodied school. Mm -hmm. uh, I mainly had able-bodied friends. And although I went to um, disabled sports clubs and, and things like that, I was I was always kind of around and part of able-bodied communities mm -hmm. and not so much part of a disabled community. So I kind of, I've, I've always felt I'm kind of half of one and half of another and never quite sure where I, I fit in. Um, so m maybe that's kind of where I try and joke about things and laugh about things. But to kind of answer your question, of course, you're, you're always going to be drawn to positive, funny people. But I, I try not to take what goes online too seriously because mm. you, you never know what if someone's just having a bad day or or what else other people are going through. So unless I know someone very, very well, I, I tend to take most things on Twitter and Facebook with a big pinch of salt. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really positive. I think I generally used to do that. <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> I've I followed too many people and I get a bit consumed with negativity and then I've become a bit shouty about their negativity which doesn't make me a great human being because I'm just exacerbating the problem I'm exactly like you actually I was I was born able-bodied and then I acquired my disability I went from being just the kind of average Joe kid yeah I was ginger so I stood out and I was tiny so I stood out but I wasn't I was kind of just in with everyone else and then breaking my arm and then started to kind of hobble around school and then mm. eventually end up using a wheelchair. I was very much like you. I was, I was in the able-bodied world. And yeah, of course, there were, there were days I was definitely negative and angry and, and despondent because I was in a lot of pain. And as a child, I guess, don't quite have the vocabulary. So you can be a bit, in my case, I was a bit more furious with the world rather than just kind of accepting 
and saying I'm having a rubbish day. Deal with that and cope with that. And my family's way have always been to find find the funny side, find the humour. So I was always the butt of the joke, but mostly because I made myself the butt of the joke. And it wasn't until I started losing my vision in my teenage years and I was doing my GCSEs that it was like a, a, the next step of like the next layer of being not able-bodied again and, and kind of see how the world perceives me. And I find that really, really interesting because I, again, used to take the mick out of myself. And we've got this kind of rule in my house that blind jokes are on, on the table. Whether I'm making them or you're making them, you can, you can make as many jokes as you like. And there aren't any that I get particularly offended about. But I noticed that those who have lived in the disability community and kind of had that support network, I guess, from their peers from a younger age, maybe not every single person, of course, but they're not as kind of open to taking the mick out of their disability. And I just wonder your opinion. Do you think that's because trying to be positive, finding the funny side in our disability and kind of being the part of the joke, but to make other people feel more comfortable about us? Yeah, I think. A large part of it is certainly trying to uh, take away other people's lack of being comfortable around a disabled person, um, which I think I'm, I'm kind of for and against because obviously I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable around me, but at the same time, it's not my job to make everyone else comfortable Yes. Um, yes. just because my body happens to end at the knees. But I think, yeah, the kind of making jokes and the sense of humour, a lot of it is a defence mechanism. A lot of it is you don't have to be scared of me or, or worried around me because I'm, I'm just like you. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tool. And like everything else, it's, it depends how you use that tool. I think if you use it as an icebreaker, um, great. I think it can be overused mm-hmm. um, and people can have just become that funny disabled guy. Uh, who's making jokes about themselves but doesn't have anything else to say. Yeah. And uh, and I think it can be underused as well. For me, um, especially when I was younger, and I've always loved stand-up comedy, I think humour is a way to create an identity as well. So, like I say, you can be that funny disabled person, but you you can overuse it as well. It's, it's, It's one of those strange things where you have to find the balance. Hmm. and having no legs balance isn't particularly my forte um, <laughs> so it, it I think it all depends what you're you're trying to achieve but at the same time you can't overthink it because some people like myself are just dorks who will make jokes at every opportunity mm. yeah I, I've noticed that I do that my husband and I we're forever making silly jokes like it's not even about my disability it's just jokes and I think yeah. that, that's part of our part of our relationship, part of our humour, part of our connection. And we can be, we can have quite dark humour, but we're also very aware that other people around us, we use that only at home, where it's appropriate. And <laughs> they can use it in context, whereas a constant retweeter of other people's jokes and funny comments, because I think I'm actually not that funny, and anything I say could be a, interpreted badly or be just that typical, the joke's done and no one actually realised it was a joke. But I feel like it can be more funny at home because I have that kind of darker sense of humour. 
But yeah, I, like, I, I like how you touched on that, that it can be overused and underused. And it's finding that balance when people generally have noticed I will. But if things come up in topic of conversation, say I'm I'm at a conference and I'm meeting a lot of new people for the first time. People notice that I'm small. I'm four foot nine and I have a guide dog. So I, I stand out in a way that most people don't anyway. But if people start to we start having conversations and maybe the odd conversation or topic jumps onto my sight loss or how much can I see? Can I see anything? Then I might just slip in or topic. I make myself the butt of the joke, A, to make people feel comfortable, but B, to also let people know I'm accepting of my own disability. And I don't know whether you agree or don't agree at all, but I feel that some people who are, for example, just new to the journey of disability, they're really trying to cope with everything that's been piled on them from all angles, whether that's medical professionals, um, society, friends and family, their, their work colleagues, whatnot, that they become a little bit more sensitive and then people withdraw from them. And I remember that Scope did their campaign about how two thirds of able-bodied people are actually embarrassed slash don't talk to disabled people because they don't know how to approach them or what to say. Instead of thinking they're a normal human being, they see the disability. And so I guess when I'm in a, a room full of new people, I'm the first to make a joke to make other people feel at ease, but also to let them know that, I guess I'm like everyone else, I just happen to joke about my disability. Do you find that you do that at all? Yes, yeah, I think so. And if our disability is the most visually obvious thing about us, whether it's being sat in a wheelchair or having a guide dog with you, mm -hmm. then that's the thing that we will make a joke about. So, got, Ten hundred thousand million jokes about disabilities but you're exactly right when you say knowing your audience is the important thing so when i'm out with my mates i can make a joke about a disability that i wouldn't make if i was in a situation you outlined where i'm meeting people at a conference for the first time but then if, if you go into one of these conferences then a lot of the people you meet who are able-bodied will probably have a little kind of icebreaker. So oh, I think it's a very natural thing to do if you have a disability or not. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking about that actually. My dad, he's in the Royal Navy. Um, they are all about jokes and cracking jokes 24-7. He can be extremely professional in the boardroom, but he's also mm. the first one in the circle to, to crack a joke and make people laugh. And I think yeah, it's, it's because we want people to like us and know we're approachable and, and likable. And humour generally can, can bring people together as a way of connecting. My dad is able-bodied, he doesn't have any disabilities, so he, what, he might be observational in his comedy rather than talking about something specific. So, yeah, that, that's really interesting, actually. And, uh, sorry, if I could just put in, I actually worked for the Royal Navy Royal Marines Charity. Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago so I've a, a little inkling of what the Navy um, <laughs> men and women are like and um, I've had a few drinks with them as well so and that is a lot of fun yeah <laughs> <laughs> if you're around a bunch of people in naval experiences especially those that have been in a submarine on a ship or hunkered down somewhere in base and you haven't really seen any other humans except 
your comrades, <laughs> yeah, the jokes go flying. And Absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably a great way of being because it, it brings up morale, but it's also a great way of just being naturally funny. Which brings me on to I'm all about this humour and chatting and disability and whatnot. You have a fantastic story because of a tweet that you put out a while ago and it resurfaces from time to time and every time it makes me laugh my head off. Would you like to share that? Um, no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the best stories, it is completely true. And it came from, I, I wish I could credit, I can't remember who, but someone um, put a tweet up saying, share a story about the about yourself that sounds like a lie but is absolutely true mm -hmm. and i i shared and it's uh, it's my pin tweet um every three years the department of work and pension send me an 80 page questionnaire asking if there have been any changes or improvements to my disability just just basically asking are things still the same mm -hmm. and i had both my legs amputated in 1979 so I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what they're up. What I will implore everyone not to do is what I did um, a few years back. And I, I posted it back to them. I hadn't filled it out. And I put a sticker or a post-it note on the front, uh, which basically read, as I'm not a salamander, my legs haven't grown back yet. Um, <laughs> and they stopped my, at the time, disability living allowance. They, they wow. stopped it completely and I had to go back in for a full assessment. So I don't think they found it as funny as we do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and on that tweet, it kind of took on a life of its own. I mean, it didn't go viral or anything like that. But what it did do is encourage so many people to share kind of their stories about the DWP. Mm -hmm. A lot of them absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, some of them really, really funny. And I think there's an old saying that comedy is just tragedy plus time. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that's a big part of being disabled. It can be seen as a tragedy, depending on your outlook. But given enough time, you will find something to laugh about. Yeah, that's a really, really beautiful point, actually. And I couldn't agree with that more. And I feel that I'm, I guess I'm on the Internet. Uh, with my blog and, and so many other things including this podcast in the hopes of helping the able-bodied community the non-disabled community see a different side of disability and there is always going to be a grieving process especially if you were born able-bodied and then something happened whether it was an accident or disease or whatnot and then you kind of disability fell into your lap and I think that's what the worry is, is with able-bodied people and the non-disabled community. They realise that deep down, anyone could become disabled at any point. And it's the worry of, well, how, how will my life be? I can't, mm. I can't find the joy anymore. And when I'm in person and I'm, I'm doing talks to people, whether they are non-disabled or people who are quite new to their disability, especially in like the sight loss community, I say it's okay to cry and scream and be angry, but it's okay to laugh. And I think that was my biggest benefactor is that when I could see the funny side of it, 
I also forgot that it it was this big weight upon me or a perceived weight sure. upon me, especially by society. And I'm really, really lucky that I've built up you know, a little community over the five years I've been online sharing this. And the amount of like emails and direct messages I get from people saying, thank you for being so truthful and honest about the good and the bad, because if you didn't, I probably wouldn't have come to accept or help my family come to accept or even be able enough to make a joke and not feel like the room's gonna quieten down because of it. And I think that's really, really powerful is you can really and truly have a way of coping, however that is. If yours is a physical disability, you might power into finding different ways of being able to to do a sport to paint to run to to do whatever if yours is a, a mental disability you might find different ways of being creative to take your mind off things and then if you have a sensory disability like me you you might find ways of seeing the world in a different way pardon the pun because i do i do see the world in a different way now and it's opened my eyes to the beauty of humanity and that when things go wrong as long as i'm not in real true danger which honestly has never actually happened there's always something to find funny about later on and I think that's yeah. helped me in my own quote unquote recovery journey, because for a long time I've suffered with clinical depression based on the fact that my sight loss kind of happened quite quickly. For me, it was getting back on my feet and getting back to university and living my quote unquote normal life and then facing barrier after barrier after barrier to access. And that's what got me to become depressed because I realized that my life was so different even if I did want the world to stop and for me to fall off the end of the earth, it's okay if I felt like that. But for me, it was everyone else telling me that the world was not available to me anymore. The world was not accessible to me anymore. And, and that's what I find tough. And I think why I, I'm always very big on talking so openly about the good and the bad and then trying to find the humour in things. And I think you, you do that perfectly. And I, I love seeing your <laughs> tweets online. <laughs> Thank, thank you. I mean, we're all we're all on a journey, um, especially if you know if we're talking about disabilities. For some people, that journey starts at birth. There are other people that might start a while later, maybe a long while later. Mm. But we're all on that journey, and we're all we're all trying to get to the same place. I think, well, for me, that that place is is kind of acceptance, both acceptance from myself and and from other people. What you said about people being afraid that if they they have an accident or something and become disabled what will they do that was really highlighted by a, a traffic awareness uh, or a speed awareness um poster that was in australia a few years ago mm -hmm. where they were warning people about speeding and on the poster there was basically a wheelchair uh, saying if, if you don't watch your speeding you could end up in one of these oh, um wow. which is or i mean it, it might be true but the way it was kind of held up as a wheelchair being this god awful thing that you should be afraid of being in and it's the worst thing that could happen to you it was it was pretty disgusting Absolutely. um it was it was really disgusting in terms of oh how, how do you cope if you're disabled well like i said i had both my legs amputated through the knee i didn't keep my brain in my feet mm. and i didn't keep my sense of humor in my feet or my drive or my ambition none of that is in my feet 
So having my legs amputated didn't really change who I am. Mm -hmm. I think it certainly changed the experiences I went through and it probably changed how I viewed things. I don't know. I think I'd never be so vain as to say my mission is to change how the able-bodied people look at disabled people. Um, <laughs> That's kind of what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm vain. <laughs> you be vain. That's fine. That's fine. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting thing. At the same time, I'm very aware that I don't want to be disability porn or where people say oh this is someone look at him he's in a wheelchair he does he does amazing things every disabled person should should be like him you know i don't think any of us want to be inspiration porn for able-bodied people no. uh, that's so i'm i'm kind of again trying to find that fine line between doing what i do and if i inspire people then that's amazing but i i don't want to be held up as the, the poster boy for this is who everyone should do. And therefore, if you're not achieving what Dave's achieving, then you're, you're failing as a disabled person somehow. Mm. Yeah, I think we're definitely on our own journey. And I think the two kind of memes or whatever they are that have been going on for like 10 plus years that really get my goat every time are... The only disability is a bad, bad attitude. attitude. Oh, yes. That is it. <laughs> and I'm just like, piss off. Because... Uh, yes you can have a bad attitude but really people have oh no I can't I can't even go into it I'll be here for another three hours <laughs> do, you, do you have any perspectives on that particular one I think it is a matter of perspective I've, I saw I can't remember her name but there's a young lady um, who was deaf who was part of I'm going to sound like such an old fogey now she was part of one of these um, e-sport game playing teams <laughs> you know, the young kids, what they do now on their video games. Mm -hmm. um, but she shared that meme. And I, I think to her, it was very, very true. But mm -hmm. that is got to be taken in perspective of what her disability is, what her experience is, the support network that she has. I think what we have to just, everyone has to be aware of is that our own experiences aren't everyone else's experiences mm -hmm. and vice versa. But I, I'm also very, none of us should be reduced to just being a meme or a retweet or anything like that. Perhaps as disabled people, it's very easy um, for the rest of the world to really pigeonhole us. So I could be a person in wheelchair who does marathons and nothing else. Mm. You know, you could be pigeonholed as person with a visual impairment who does podcasts and nothing else mm -hmm. um it's very difficult for us to be kind of 3d characters and the, the only way we can be seen for who we are is to be who we are and that's with all our our, our achievements and all, all our failings um and everything else it's a bit weird i i mean my my twitter name is irish ego and the ego is there for a reason um, i even have ego tattooed on my wrist and when I was younger, I was I was very, very arrogant. And I probably still have a touch of that now. Um, I suppose just to even think that I'm capable of pushing 30 marathons in 30 days, you, you have to have a certain element of, of kind of arrogance to you. I've learned, and certainly learned through Twitter, is that 
my experiences aren't everyone else's experiences. And I used to look at other amputees or people who used wheelchairs and kind of get very cross that they weren't doing what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is obviously we know what ableism is coming from the able-bodied community. Yeah. There is also, I think, a large degree of ableism from disabled people towards other disabled people. I was really guilty of that for a long time. And it's through interacting with other people on Twitter that I've kind of learned that some people can't do what I can do and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But I think that yeah. was probably part of growing up in an able-bodied community. I was the only disabled person I really knew. So of course I would assume that other disabled people could do what I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's been a big part of my journey is um, basically, as my mum would say, wind your neck in. So I've been so lucky doing the thing done. I've received a, a very, very small degree of recognition and had nominations for things like the Pride of Britain and the National Diversity Awards and, and different things like that. But um, I think they're also very well deserved because the, it does, whether you call it arrogance, ego, stamina, positive mental well-being, it does take an extra level of human to do that because not everyone can there are people with my level of disability that have had far worse cases they've literally gone through hell and back my friend has arthritis it went to her heart and nearly killed her and yeah that is fucking scares me and it's baffling and (laughs) yeah it's i've I've never actually heard of that so yeah until it happened to her i didn't know and so I guess I, I take the kind of the shielding, the thing that we're in at the moment for me personally, very seriously, just because I know how aggressive arthritis can be. So the arthritis went to my eyes and have killed them, essentially. That's why I'm blind. And so I think for me, having arthritis and being blind people just see me as the Mm. blind girl which doesn't bother me so much because if I can use that as a platform of good I I will use that to my advantage but I am very not when someone's new to disability and not when someone has the skills and the support when everything's kind of lined up on a shelf quite nicely I do get a bit angsty about other disabled people in my position who either have better vision than me or the same level of vision than me and then kind of cry wolf that life's really difficult because I feel that and this probably where I am slightly ableist is I like you grew up in a able-bodied society and I had to almost fight to be heard from my wheelchair because people would talk over me because a I was a child and b because I was sitting down so people talk quite literally over my head and I'm sure you get that too and so I feel that I had to have, again, a, a level of arrogance, I call it like my fury and my anger, put myself out there for adults to hear me because adults would talk over me, children would talk over me. And then I guess I find it strange when I'm surrounded by people in the, say, for example, the sight loss community that have been in this game their entire life or seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years longer than I have, similar, maybe better or, or poorer vision than me. And yet they only have visual impairment and I'm like but if you learn say technology skills and if you do a b and c the the world isn't as completely against you as you may feel and I think that's where because I grew up in an able-bodied society 
everyone expected very little from me. And then when I achieved something small, to them it was a gigantic thing because it's like, oh, the girl in the wheelchair did something other than sit in her wheelchair. And I'm like, mm. right. So I think that is really difficult because I see both sides of it. I see that there are people who are a different position to me, in the same condition and have literally had life and death experiences. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I really do need to be aware of my own health. And then I see other people with better vision than me saying, I'm so scared I can't leave my house because of social distancing. And I'm like, okay. You just brought up a really, really valuable point to me that we are really completely on our own journey in life. And we all have to take a bit of compassion with all of that. And I'm, I'm very guilty of... I can be compassionate most of the time, but there are a few moments where uh, I, I'm not, I'm not as compassionate, as considerate. And I think that probably, I don't know, doesn't make me a great human being. When we're talking about people with similar disabilities, so there are people with, who are double amputees, same as me, who, who won't walk as far as I can walk, and I can't walk that far now. <laughs> and I suppose there are people in the visually impaired community um, with maybe a similar level level of vision to you that won't do as much as you can do. The way I try and think about it is when I was in school and we were in French class, me and all the 30 kids in my class, we were all learning French from the same teacher and we all had the same French textbooks. But there are other people who are far better at French than I was and there are other people who are worse at French than I was. Mm. So sometimes it's just... Some people are good at some things and some people aren't. Um, whether, whether that comes down to how you apply yourself, whether that comes down to if your mum makes you do French homework in the evenings, I don't know. I think, I think sometimes you've, it, it's just some people are good at going out and doing stuff. Some people aren't. And, you know, people are people. I think that's probably the thing I've learned most. People are people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you make a really valid point there that not only are people people, but we've actually still got a long way to go for society, especially being in the UK in a first world country, for people, I should say, society to see us as people of worth. And yeah. I I guess it's because when I see negativity online, it isn't it's not a one-off, it's a barrage because maybe it's the people I'm following I see a barrage and I'm like but this is why the world doesn't see us as equals and I'm not saying that we are equal because we're clearly not that's why we have discrimination laws because we're not seen as equal but I think when I feel you've got all the tools in your arsenal to be you don't have to excel you don't have to be a Stephen Hawking's of this world but when you can just do the average Joe stuff and you don't find it, I guess, as difficult or stressful or you just don't complain about it as much. I think that's why I gravitate to the really funny, positive people with the positive attitudes that they say funny things on Twitter and on the internet and take a pinch of salt with the characters online and also find the funny in their disability. Because I maybe me being overtly negative makes my mental health decrease and I'm not helping myself by by subjecting myself to reading those things and seeing those things but absolutely I mean my, my advice to absolutely everyone on the planet right now is if you see a person on Facebook or Twitter or wherever 
and what they post either upsets you or sort of drags you into an argument or something, um, I would say delete those people. And uh, to the extent that if, if anyone's listening um, out there on and sees stuff that I put on Twitter that they don't like, I'd say delete me and block me because especially with what's going on at the moment for every individual's mental health, we need to take as much negativity out as possible. Mm-hmm. So um, if anyone if anyone who is listening doesn't like me on Twitter, please, please block me because that's that's if it's good for your men in fact ah oh, here's here's a story so a few years ago i did the great south run for a guy who i came into contact with because i met his sister on a night out basically and i was very very drunk and um it was just after i'd done the brighton marathon and she told me about her brother and i'd say i said you know i've got a few things lined up but maybe in a year or two i'll, I'll do something to help raise some money for him and then we, we kind of met up a couple of years later and they invited me to a party. And one of the guests there, um, having learned that I was a double amputee, said, oh, why haven't you gone to the Paralympics? And I said, well, because I just, just haven't. I mean, I was in the, the training squad for the 2012 Paralympics for volleyball, but I just wasn't, wasn't good enough. And he went, well, Oscar Pistorius has got no legs. He did it. Why can't you? Um, this is pre-shooting, by the way. Um, but then, but then I, I, I replied to him, well, you know, why aren't you playing for Real Madrid? Because David Beckham's got two legs and so have you. So what's the difference? Absolutely. Um, but then, anyway, uh, that was a few years ago. And then in, in the spring, the lad who I raised money for, his mum sent me a message on Facebook. And she said, yeah, I, I, I don't like the things you put on Facebook. They're very negative. And I, I said to her, then, then please take me off Facebook. Take, if you see me as being negative, take that negativity out of your life because I certainly don't want to bring anyone else down. I don't want anyone to bring me down. So if, that, if that's what you want to do, then, then do it. And I didn't mean that in like an angry way or a defensive way. Mm-hmm. I meant it in a really genuine way that if you see something on social media and we're all on social media so much, just remove it. So you don't have to see it or read it or hear it or, or whatever. But then as, as, as I said earlier, social media, you've, you've got to take it with a pinch of salt. Yeah. I'm really like enjoying this conversation more so because I feel that you are really open and honest about it, but you're also, as you said, you're, you're not angry about it. And I think that's, that's where, for me, I personally have. I've been angry on social media and I've had people call me out for it. Then I've also had private messages being like, go girl, like I completely agree with you, et cetera, et cetera. But who's to say that either side is right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've been angry on, so everyone's been angry on social media. If, if someone says they haven't lost their temper on social media, I'm not sure they'd be telling the truth. Mm. Um, but I find that the times when I, I really dislike it is when I'm arguing with someone. I don't enjoy that at all. And I know some people do, but I, I really don't. Certainly, I've had kind of online rows with other people in disabled Twitter mm-hmm. and have ended up either blocking or being blocked by, by people who I really liked over what was probably just a stupid argument. I can't even remember what it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really regret those things. I think 
with social media, the best thing you can do is, is take a breath and breathe for 10 seconds before you hit the reply button. Because I know I, I hit reply and I type furiously. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I think, my God, what am I doing? This isn't helpful. I'd like to think that with these kind of a couple of award nominations that have, have, have come in over the last year or so, I'd like to think that there's, I have a, some kind of responsibility to act with a modicum of, of care online. Um, I don't always, sometimes I can still be a hothead, but I think now there's something I'm really proud of is there are a couple of youngsters whose parents say that I've inspired them who are out and about at the moment doing some incredible fundraising, both fundraising, but both re really impressive things out there. I'm finally at the stage at 41 years old and never have, having had children of my own, I kind of, I've sort of adopted these, these youngsters as, as mine. So I'm really trying hard to not be a complete twat um, <laughs> because I don't want to embarrass them or their families. <laughs> I like that and I, I agree with you having that kind of as you said modicum of care online I also have had so many people have come through to me direct messages and emails and things like that saying that they liked my personality they liked my honesty they liked the person they saw online and I feel like I then have to without shining a light on myself and making me being the big I am I then have a responsibility to keep my cool because then that way those especially younger generation they they aren't seeing me being reactive and thinking that's the way you should handle things yeah yeah absolutely and again it's it's that fine line that we've spoken about so many times where you, you have kind of a, a, a duty of care but also you have to be yourself as well. And if you are a bit of a hothead like I am, and I think you can be when the time is time is right. Yeah, I also feel like for me personally, that my hot-headedness is also the reason I'm as strong as I am. Because Oh yeah, absolutely. I've had to fight my entire life for accommodations that, you know, as as we've said before, have been handed to able-bodied people on a plate. Um and so I've, I've never always been completely like furious and shouting and screaming, but I've always stood my ground and I've always said, no, this isn't acceptable. And I think that's why people online, when they see me kind of shouting for my rights, they agree with it more often than not, because they know it comes from a place of compassion because I understand maybe what they might've been feeling or thinking because I want an equal society. It's hard because my, my mum's very hot-headed and my biological father is very hot-headed. So I feel like it, it's kind of come through the trenches with me. But I also believe strongly that if I wasn't as hot-headed as I, as I am, or at least as I was a long time ago, that I wouldn't have the, the stamina and I wouldn't have the belief in myself that I can do this or I can do that. It doesn't have to come from aggression, but being forthright sometimes is power to that person more often than just walking away from it and putting your head down and just being like, don't worry about it. Like, let's just move on. Yeah, absolutely. My biggest strength is my determination, my stubbornness. And you won't be surprised to hear that my biggest weakness is my determination and my stubbornness. 
<laughs> yes, yeah, um, because I won't give up on anything but I'm perhaps not bright enough to realise that when the right time is to give up on something. Mm. But I mean, talking about having to fight for equal rights, for equalities, I mean, it's only, was it the early 90s that they started putting a space for wheelchairs on buses? Yeah. So we're not far removed from that. We're still right in the middle of this. And although we've we've talked about kind of having a sense of humour and seeing the funny side in things, we also have to have that determination and stubbornness to keep going and to keep raising issues. And in the papers, perhaps not at the moment because we've got um, this horrific pandemic going on, but there are certainly, there, there's a lot of fighting still to be done. That's why I, I really appreciate who are advocates. And I always try and, I haven't got a lot of, of, of money at the moment because uh, I'm not working because of the pandemic, but I always try and people's books like dr francis ryan had a brilliant one out oh yeah um, last year that, yeah yeah I, I really recommend it um so if, if you buy it then i want 10 percent from francis ryan as a finder's fee um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there are some really really important advocates out there uh, of which i do not pretend to be one i'm quite happy doing doing what i do and supporting other people I get invited to do a lot of talks and conferences and things like that because I'm an open book and I, I'm quite happy to speak on stage and chat everybody's ears off and make them bleed and want them to go home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I also well, I'm definitely going to book you now. You make people <laughs> oh, yeah. want to go home. I'm a great seller, aren't I? <laughs> so they put you on at the end of the... Yeah, put everyone... Right. <laughs> <laughs> I also am very aware that... I talk about my own lived experiences. I'm not, say I'm not a doctor or I don't have a doctorate in social psychology or disability uh, politics and, and things like that. Whereas a lot of these fantastic advocates have and they, they sure. pull strength from knowing because they, they know they've researched it, they've done the hard graft. And I do sometimes feel very, very inadequate because what am I doing online talking about myself all the time? Like I, I do invite people to talk about themselves and if they choose to, that's great. But I spend a lot of time talking about myself and, and my own barriers to access and how we can overcome that or at least what, what I've done to kind of improve things. But I also don't have a degree or a doctorate in social psychology or politics or anything like that that I can say for certain yeah I know I'm exactly right and I find it really difficult because when people kind of I guess big you up either online or offline and be like oh that was a great talk or that was a great I actually have a lot of imposter syndrome because I'm like but I'm, I'm actually a nobody yeah I, I, I can understand that I get exactly the same yeah when I'm asked even to do an interview like this who am I I'm just some gobby bloke who pushed a wheelchair reasonably far if you break it down like that it's nothing particularly special but then if by doing what we do if it helps people or, or they can draw some strength from it then then fantastic kind of mission accomplished mm. yeah that is my my true goal is to hopefully educate people in the disabled and the non-disabled community because being blind i haven't been totally blind my entire life and i've learned along the way of things that i wasn't being fully accessible to the blind community for so now i'm advocating it from the perspective of 
okay, if you use alt text and photo descriptions on your blog or online, and I have friends who are in different parts of the disability community saying, thank you for letting me know Sassy because I didn't even realize these things existed. But I feel proud when I'm able to put across a message that I do know is true and that can help other people that isn't just benefiting me, it benefits other people. I have to really remind myself that it's okay if people, I guess, don't like me, but it's also okay that my mission is to just try and educate people whether or not they choose to listen. Yeah, no one is ever universally liked. Oh, yeah. um, I'm such a, a people pleaser. That's probably my mission for every single person in the world to like me, but it's never going to happen. That's just part of being human. Yeah, I don't think until I kind of got on the internet that I thought myself as a people pleaser because I am, I am like you. I'm in the camp of if you don't like me, if you feel that I'm negative, block me and delete me from your life. I don't like seeing constant negativity or victim blaming or woe is me attitude all the time. So when I jump into these conversations and I get told off by the disabled community, especially on Twitter for being, being negative, I take it with the same pinch of salt as that I take when someone kind of blows up my DMs and like, oh, you're so great. Because I have to have that balance of, I can't get high on my own supply. I don't know if you um, watch Gary V at all, but that's like one of his catchphrases. And I, I'm really living by that mantra because if you're gonna take all the positives and taking all the big URs and you're the best thing since sliced bread, you've also got to actually take all the crap that comes with it. And I think I'm learning slowly but surely that whether or not I'm liked or disliked, as long as I feel that I'm saying my truth and people are getting benefit from it, even if it isn't directly benefiting me, then that, that's what matters. Yeah. There was the old uh, Rudyard Kipling poem that if you can face uh, victory and defeat and treat them both the same. Mm -hmm. Then you are a man, my son, or something like that. And it's that true is with literally one of my favourite poems of <laughs> all times. If in which case I apologise for mangling it so badly. No, because I knew, <laughs> no, no, because I knew exactly what you were referring to. If there's, as you say, a conversation that's going on which you're perceiving as as negative, and then you go in there to tell people they're being negative. That's not going to make it positive. <laughs> negative plus negative doesn't equal positive. So. And, and it's not like you should always think, oh, what am I trying to achieve before doing something? But it's, it's probably not going to help or change things. That's why, in my opinion, if there's stuff going on that's negative, I personally would kind of just leave it alone and, and let people do what they're doing. Obviously, depending on what it is, what the context of it. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's all a journey. And, you know, I'm 41 years old now, so... Uh, I've kind of had enough of, of fighting on the internet and in real life. I'd rather just do whatever I can do to help people or, or to to influence people to help themselves or help other people. Mm -hmm. And it really has been a journey. I mean, I was, I won't go too much into detail, but when I was 16, I think, I was diagnosed as a manic depressive. I went through some really difficult times and some really tough times. And, and even kind of spent time in hospital being treated because my depression was so, so bad. And I took it out on myself rather than anyone else. So to go from who I was then in my early 20s to 20 years later, 
deciding to do 30 marathons in 30 days for no other reason than it might raise some money for a couple of kids that I know and a, and a, and a disabled charity. That's a hell of a journey, but it did take 20 years. It was a long time coming. People can grow into who they're meant to be, but then they're certainly not going to do it overnight. Yeah, I'm definitely still growing. I still waiting to reach five foot for a start (laughs) (laughs) and and yeah I I look back at some of the ways I thought and behaved I'm embarrassed and I'm ashamed but I think it's also part of the learning curve never committed murder or a crime it's just when I reflect on it I'm like I really didn't need to have done that or said that I'm 30 next year and I feel like I've still got so much more to grow really good that you were sharing your story then of like mental health because one that isn't talked about often enough but two you said they took out on yourself and I think whether or not I'm drawing a parallel between mental health and disability as a whole there is a very high percentage of people that live with a disability that also at some point in their life struggle with their mental health and that again isn't really talked about but the way I'm kind of psychoanalyzing it is that society tells us we're not good enough generally by all the barriers to access whether or not you grow up in an able-bodied world or you've got more assistance through specialist schools there comes a point where it gets too much and I think I had that breakdown in 2018 and I have received a lot of fantastic support and mental health treatment from that throughout 2019, which is, I guess, why I'm in a better place today. But I still look at myself and think I could be doing more and I could be doing better because I'm not 30. Yeah, but sorry, uh, better compared to who, though? You can only do what you can do. Yeah, I guess, yeah. I just, hmm, yeah, I didn't really think of it like that. Yeah, that's like the guy at the party saying to me, well, Oscar Pistorius can, can run. Why aren't you doing it? Mm. You know, it's, I think, I think a lot of it is to do with forgiveness. Like you said, you've done stuff online, which makes you cringe. If I thought about all the stuff that I've done online, I would be cringing 24 seven. That would be my full-time job. Mm. I would just be in a permanent state of cringe. So I think we have to forgive ourselves for mistakes we've made. And we also have to apply that level of forgiveness to other people as well. And without wanting to break into songs, you you do have to kind of let it go. Um, (laughs) But it it is tough. And I think disability is spoken about, mental health is spoken about, but you're right, they're not spoken about together. Um, I think the reason for that is people can only cope with so much in terms of the information they're being given. So if they've just wrapped their head around the fact I've got no legs, they certainly can't cope with, he sits in a room and cries for three hours a day on top of that. But again, it comes back to what I was speaking about earlier, that we're, we're, we're people with the 3D personalities and we're not just disabled person in wheelchair, visually impaired person, or blind person who does podcast we are all this facets of our personality and we, we have to accept that and I think we have to put that out there as well yeah yeah that's really powerful well thank you very much for having me on 
and I've had a brilliant view of your wardrobe and I can see all the all the junk on top of your wardrobe you really need to clean that out that's that's terrible <laughs> but no it, it's been it's been really good it's been really fun and it's been really interesting and I'm, I'm still on my journey and I think I always will be and I, I, I certainly hope I always will be because there's certainly things to learn and there are people to learn from and I, I never really want that to end now that is a beautiful way to end this podcast. Thank you. Thank you ever so much for your time and having this really insightful conversation. I hope that the people listening to this, if you've got any comments or questions, of course, you can email at purpleelephantpod at gmail.com. But I think that the topic of discussion is the fact that we are multifaceted with 3D people and that's where the conversation has taken us here, there and everywhere, which I think is quite interesting anyway. But yeah, Dave, do you have any final words in context and do you want to share any of your social media platforms so people can find you out in the world? No. <laughs> yeah, you can add me on Twitter at the Irish Ego. Um, that's really the only thing but be warned that if you do add me you will see terrible jokes and requests for money for my fundraising so if you don't have a sense of humor and lots and lots of money don't bother <laughs> well i i think i have a good sense of humor but i've got no money but uh all right you're you're, you're blocked and reported <laughs> <laughs> oh no honestly thank you so much thank you for your time and and being such a great fundraiser because it takes a lot of time and energy and like mental energy to to do what you do never mind the 30 marathon in 30 days just just fundraising in general asking people for support and putting yourself out there for that is it's pretty spectacular. I think I've only ever done it about five or six times properly in my life. And I'm exhausted by every one of them, which is probably why I don't do it very often. Yeah, it is tough. But then when I get interviewed, I get to talk about me for 10 minutes. So that, that evens it out. <laughs> I like that. Oh, I absolutely love that. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Purple Elephant. 30 marathons in 30 days with David Wilson and me your host Sassy Wyatt. As you can tell Dave is a character. He's absolutely hilarious and even right towards the end we got into some deep topics and I'd love to have him on the podcast again. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and I hope this helped you to become a better human being. <laughs>